0: Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you. Good to see you, and those of you watching online. Good to have you with us as well. Man, what a day to come to Redemption Gilbert, right? My, uh, I'm here with uh, my two youngest kids, Hank, uh, who's four, and Mary, who's six. And uh, Hank saw the bounce houses out there, and he said, "I'm never going back to Gateway." And I, I didn 't have a heart to tell him it 's not like this every week, but uh, but if you 're new here, especially welcome uh, you're in a great place, and I think you're going to have a lot of fun today, but also just a great place to grow uh, in your faith. I, I bring greetings today from Redemption Gateway, as Paul said, we uh, view this Redemption church as a family uh, we 're here at Gilbert, one of ten congregations that are part of that family, and uh, at, at Redemption Gateway, we pray for you and we love you, and um, I bring greetings from there. As well, so um, we were Paul and I, and Sean Warren, and, and some people from around the country were in a, a training thing this past week uh, with a guy named Bob Beal. Bob has been mentoring uh, pastors and business leaders and people for, gosh, probably fifty years or so. And uh, even though we were having, we were actually hosting the meeting. People from around the country came, and and but it was hosted here in one of the classrooms. But Bob just could not stop calling it Resurrection Church. Every time he would refer to this church, he would say, here at Resurrection, Resurrection. And i was thinking, did I miss a, a, an important meeting where we changed our name to Resurrection Church? And finally, by the end, we just stopped correcting him. It was like, whatever, Bob. He, yeah, okay, it's Resurrection Church. And as I was thinking about it, especially in light of this passage today, I thought, you know what? In a sense, he's right. Any church really is a Resurrection Church. There is no church if not for the resurrection. The Christian faith is built on resurrection. That's what we celebrated just a few weeks ago was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that resurrection of Jesus is actually foreshadowed and pictured in this story here in John chapter 11. So if you have your Bible, you're going to want to open it to John chapter 11. Um, This is a long passage of scripture, actually 44 verses. We only read a portion of it earlier. And what I want to do is kind of look at it in four different scenes, and we'll kind of walk through those and pull out some lessons from each of those scenes. But this this passage is a preview of, of Jesus' resurrection, and Jesus' resurrection, get this, Jesus' resurrection is a preview of our resurrection. That's our hope is that our, our, our hope is not in this life. Get this, our hope is not even in just us going to heaven, but our hope is in heaven coming to earth and in us being raised to enjoy the new heavens and the new earth that we have because of Jesus. Amen? Amen. So that's our hope, and this is an incredibly hopeful passage. So let's pray, and we'll dive in and get to work. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the resurrection. And as we gather here today as Redemption Church Gilberts, we're mindful that, in a sense, we are a resurrection church. And so, God, I pray that you would bring resurrection today. God, I pray that you would bring resurrection in the places where we feel loss, in the places where we feel pain, in the places where we feel discouragement or depression or anxiety or grief. God, would you bring resurrection? Would you bring uh, not flowery, trite, bumper-stickery phrases of hope, but actually substantial hope to us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So I view this story a bit as like a, a kind of a movie or a, a, a film, or I think this would be a great episode if any of you know the the Video series of The Chosen. This would be a great uh, episode of that. And I think you'd see it in four different scenes. So we're going to look at it in four different scenes. So the first scene, I'm going to call uh, scene one, So He Stayed. And in this scene, this first scene, uh, verses 1 to 16, we see the patience of Jesus. Each of these scenes is going to show us a characteristic of Jesus. Here we'll see the patience of Jesus. So if you have your Bible, again, you can look at this. Uh, John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, that story about Mary wiping the feet of Jesus, that's actually going to be told here in just another chapter or so. This is the same Mary and Martha who were referred to in Luke 10. Martha, the one who was busy working, and Mary, the one who was sitting there at the feet of Jesus. Same people, close friends of Christ, and their brother Lazarus, it said in verse 2, was ill. Verse 3, so the sisters sent to him, sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said that this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus says the end result here isn't going to be death, which must have been encouraging. And yet here's a striking verse, verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? See, just a little while ago, Jesus and his disciples had been under the threat of Jesus being killed, so they had gone off kind of back into the wilderness, and now this thought of having to go back uh, near Jerusalem, his disciples are going, Whoa, 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 this is not a great idea, Jesus. You're going to end up killed if you go back there. And so they have some back and forth. Jesus says, Hey, I've come here to do the work that, that God's given me to do. Uh, Lazarus, uh, again, this isn't going to end in death. He, he hasn't, he, he's, he's fallen asleep. It, it, it says in verse 13, Now Jesus had spoken of his death that they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, we know him as Doubting Thomas. Here's he; He's actually bold Thomas. Thomas said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. So they get word initially that Lazarus is sick. And it says, because Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, he stayed where he was rather than rushing to heal him. Then they get word that Lazarus has actually died. And Jesus says, yeah, he died, but it's really more like sleep. He's going to live again. Just wait and see. What do we see in this first scene? This first scene, we see the patience of Jesus. And here's our first lesson from this passage is that Jesus has purposes in our pain beyond what we can see. Oh, isn't that good news today? I don't know if y'all heard me. Jesus has purposes in our pain Beyond what we can see, verse four, when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. This is an illness that certainly seemed to be leading to death and in fact did lead to death and yet Jesus says there's a purpose higher. It's God's glory. Now, when you and I experience painful circumstances, when we experience loss, we naturally ask the same question, don't we? What's the question we ask? Why? why? And it's interesting because we'll never actually get a specific answer. There's really a whole book of the Bible devoted to a guy who had a great life, then experienced horrible suffering, and is constantly asking why. His name's Job. And even if you read the book of Job, what you'll see at the very end, the last few chapters, as God actually speaks out of the whirlwind to Job, He never still answers the question. Even Job, the whole book about God, why is there suffering, never answers the question. We'll ask why, but we'll never get a specific answer. And here's the thing. We might not even understand the answer if we got it. Isn't it funny? We think if God explained it to us, we'd get it. We might not get it. And the reality is there might actually be 10,000 purposes in any painful situation in our life that God does. And we don't have specific answers, but the one answer this text gives us is this at the end of verse four, so that the son of God may be glorified through it. The purpose of God in our pain is that he would be glorified through it. That even though we can't see how it's gonna work out, we would keep trusting him. Even though we don't know the path forward, we would see that he's our hope. That's our purpose, is that the Son of God would be glorified through it. And we might be sitting here going, Well, yeah, but doesn't doesn't God care? And the answer, of course, is yes. Keep reading. So that's the first lesson. Jesus has purposes in our pain beyond what we can see. The second lesson is this Jesus is not in a hurry, He's not in a hurry. We're always in a hurry. Aren't we? I mean, we're checking our watch, we're checking our phone. You know, one of the things I find myself doing is walking really fast. I have to try to actually try, especially on Sunday mornings at, at, at church, to actually try to walk slow. Because I walk fast and it looks like I'm always in a hurry and it looks like I'm trying to get away from you. And I'll be in a conversation and I'm kind of leaning, like, uh, when can I go to the next one? Right? And, and we're just always in a hurry. Hurry up, kids, come on, put on your shoes, get in the car, let's go, let's go, let's go. We're in a hurry. Jesus is not in a hurry. Everybody just take a deep breath. Jesus is not in a hurry. This is frustrating to us, especially when we want him to get with the program. But look again at verses five and six. These are amazing verses. Look at this. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus so... When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That is not what you would expect that verse to say. You would expect to say, Jesus loved them, so as soon as he heard Lazarus was ill, he got on the high horse and he got there so he could heal him. That's not what it says. And and this word tells us that it, it was because of Jesus' love that he stayed. Because of Jesus' love, he delayed Doing what he could have done. Now this is not just that Jesus is like your kids, right? Like, I've got a four-year-old, and it's like the kid just can't get his shoes on. I mean, it's like get your shoes, get in the car, buckle up. He just can't do it. It's impossible. You can't do it. It isn't that Jesus like just you know he keeps getting distracted by the flowers. Like this is that Jesus is patient. He's lingering. And he's delaying because of his love. See, we often have this sense, Lord, if you loved me, you'd, you'd answer my prayer. Have you, have you ever thought that maybe because he loves you, he hasn't answered it yet? Jesus is just not in a hurry. Well, the next scene, we'll call Jesus and Martha, and in this scene, we see the truth of Jesus, the truth of Jesus. Uh, they go ahead and, and Jesus goes ahead and goes. It says in verse 4, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. This actually tells us that Martha and Mary and Lazarus were probably a fairly prominent family because the Jews coming a few miles from Jerusalem to go comfort this family means that they were well-known, they probably were well-off financially. And so many people have come to console them about their brother. Verse 20, So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. She didn't even wait for Jesus to get all the way there. She goes and meets him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. Now, this doesn't surprise us. When we read the stories about Martha, we know that she's a a go-getter. So the idea that she would rush out to go meet Jesus and have some questions and want to have some dialogue, right? So there's some people who that's just, they get down to business. And that's what Martha is like and so uh, Jesus loves Martha in this way by engaging in that conversation, right? Oftentimes, when you're comforting someone who's suffering, uh, you're not leading with some theological discussion. But sometimes people want to bring it up, and that's what happens here. And what do we learn from this scene? Well, the first thing we learn is that at some point, all of us say, "Lord, if you had been here." Do you see that in verse twenty-one? Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's actually the exact same words that Mary will say down in verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They say to Jesus the exact same thing. And listen, friends, there has been a time in many of our lives, or there will be a time in your life where you will say to the Lord, Lord, if you had been here, Lord, if you had been here, Lord, if you had been with me, Lord, if you had done what I'd hoped you would do, Lord, if you had been here, this cancer wouldn't have happened. Lord, if if you had been here, this loss wouldn't have taken place. Lord, if you had been here, that baby that miscarried would, would be here. Lord, if you had been here, those friendships that are fractured and frayed, Lord, if you had been here, my marriage might have stuck together. Lord, if you had been here. One of the things I love about the Bible in general, and Jesus in particular, is the Bible gives you space to be honest with God about your disappointment. You know, we have this book of Psalms, the Psalter, 150 of them. About a third of them are Psalms of lament. They're saying basically, Lord, if you'd been here... Lord, if you had showed up. And and, and Jesus doesn't say, Martha, how dare you? Have faith. He, He says, he just absorbs it. This isn't also a statement of unbelief, if you think about it. In a sense, expressing our disappointment to God is a kind of statement of faith. Right? She's saying, if you had been here, you could have done something about this. You have the power. I know that you have the power. I know that you have the capability. And when we are honest with God about our disappointment, we're telling him, Lord, I trust you enough to be mad at you. Jesus can handle it. The next thing that we learn in this scene, and this is so key, is that the resurrection isn't about a doctrine or about a time. It's about a person. It's about a person. Again, look at it. Uh, Jesus says, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know he'll rise on the resurrection of the last day. See, the Jews had an understanding of a doctrine of resurrection. They, They understood that there would be a time in history, the last day. And on the last day, everyone would rise from the dead, some to eternal life, some to eternal death. And so when Jesus says, your brother will rise again, she goes, well, I have a category for that. Yeah, I know. I believe that doctrine. I've taken the membership class. I know at the last day this is going to happen. And Jesus says, wait, 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 wait. The resurrection is not a doctrine. And it's not a time. It's me. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, that word means trust. Whoever trusts in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is an amazing thing. I mean, if you just read it at first, you go, well, Jesus confused? No, he's not confused. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. If you trust in Christ, you will die. Your heart at some point will stop beating. Your brain will stop working. You'll be buried, but you'll be alive. If you believe in Christ and everyone who lives and believes in Jesus shall never die. There is a physical death, but there is not an eternal death for those who are in Christ. Jesus says, do you believe this? And she says, yes, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who's coming into the world. And yet what we'll see later in the story is she still does not think at this point that Jesus is planning to raise her brother. But either way, Jesus is telling her, I'm the resurrection. I'm the one that gives you new life. I'm the one that gives you hope. I'm the one that gives you a future. Trust in me, Jesus says. All right, ready. Scene three, Scene three. verses 28 to 37. This is Jesus and Mary. And here we see the compassion of Jesus. So uh, Martha makes this great confession, verse 28. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here. And is calling for you. So, so remember this kind of scenery. Martha had run out of the house to meet Jesus partway. Uh, Mary had stayed back in the house. So now Martha has had this interaction, but she goes back to Mary. Jesus is still kind of not quite to the town yet, and Martha comes back to Mary and says, "Hey, the teacher would like to see you." And so Mary gets up and goes. And it's like what Jesus is trying to do is to create some private moments. He knows that lots of people are there, there's lots of hustle, there's lots of bustle. He's trying to create a private moment to connect with Martha and with Mary. Verse 29, when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him... She fell at his feet. Mary liked to be at the feet of Jesus. Remember, she was the one sitting at his feet, listening to his words. And here, with her tender heart and all of her pain, she falls at his feet. She says the exact same words that Martha had said. Surely, in the days that had passed, they'd said this to each other multiple times, don't you think? Don't you think they'd been sitting around going, Why wasn't Jesus here? We sent word. He knew about this. If he had been here, he wouldn't have died. And now they're honest with Jesus. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who'd come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Isn't it interesting? I just think it's interesting. That last part of verse 37, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? In a sense, they're saying the same thing that Mary and Martha are saying, aren't they? And yet, there's a way to to question God that has faith in it. Lord, I, I want to know you. Lord, I want to have proximity to you. Lord, I know that you're good. Lord, I know that you love me. But I'm frustrated because this thing happened. That's a faith-filled response. Uh, but, but you can say basically the same words in a way that says, God, I'm putting you in the, in the box and you're on trial. And I know and I'm in charge and I know what's right. Interesting how you can question God with faith and you can question God with unbelief. What do we learn from this scene well, from this scene, we learn that Jesus loves different people differently. This may just seem like a, well, duh, kind of thing, but, but I think it's important. I think sometimes we can kind of imagine Jesus as this very wooden, almost two-dimensional uh, person that you could just sort of put into any scene and you know exactly what he would do, like a, you know, Robotron Jesus. Well, here's, you know, what, even the, the bracelets, what would Jesus do? Assumes that Jesus would always do the same thing in every situation. But this is Jesus loving different people differently, right? Martha and Mary, they say the exact same words. They say the exact same thing, and Jesus responds differently. With Martha, he knows that she wants to have a talk about, hey, what's going on? Give me the truth. Let's, let's explore this. And so he has that with her. With, with Mary, he knows that she's broken and busted. She's falling down. She's saying with tears. And so he's moved with her tears. This is what love is, right? Unloving... And unhealthy people, rather than entering in with compassion to the people around them, they still stand back, even if they're physically close, and go, well, I wouldn't react like that. Right? This is where, if you've ever been grieving, you've experienced the loss of a loved one, and a period of time goes by, and people will kind of go, well, aren't you over it yet? And of course, you go... I'll never be over it. But what they've done, what have they done? They've said, well, I wouldn't react like you. Jesus doesn't do that. He says, here's what this person needs. Here's what this person's heart is after. I'm going to connect with them where they are. Listen, friends, Jesus today, he loves you where you are. And where you are might be different than the person next to you. And this is hard because we know Jesus loves The world, right? But what I'm trying to tell you today is that Jesus loves you. You. He knows every hair on your head, He knows every part of your story, and He loves you. I'd even say He likes you. If you gave Jesus the chance to be with you, He'd go all right, I'm in. Jesus loves you. And this is different, right? Most of us, we we run away from pain. Jesus actually starts to move closer to it. And that tells us a second lesson from this scene, which is that if you can't or won't weep at tombs, you are not like Jesus. See, some of us have kind of convinced ourselves that if we just had enough faith, we'd never feel sad. If we just had enough faith, there'd never be any pain. If we just had enough faith, there'd there'd never be grief. And so we expect people to get over it quickly. and, And we think, even as you're going, some of you, you're dealing with crippling anxiety and depression. And it is just a huge win that you're here today. And you are thinking to yourself, if I was more like Jesus, I wouldn't be so sad. And I wonder if it's ever occurred to you that you're Ability to be sad is actually one thing that might make you like Jesus. Jesus doesn't glide into the scene and say, Mary, 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 stand up, stand up, stand up. Don't you know I'm the resurrection and the life? Have hope. But what Jesus actually does is say, you know what, let's go see the tomb. I want to get closer to the grief, I want to get closer to the pain, I want to get closer to the loss. Not so I can go, see this grave, it will never matter because I will rise again. Nor is it because he's going, hey, in about 10 minutes, you're gonna quit crying. <laughs> but, but Jesus is moving toward it, weeping. I mean, this word weeping, it, it, it's intense emotion. He's kind of heaving. And if you're not moved to tears, by the grief of a broken world at some point. You're not like Jesus. Uh, You know, as a pastor, you get invited to preside over funerals. Only I don't remember the last time I presided over a funeral. Now I just preside over celebrations of life. And I get it. We want to honor and celebrate the people that we love. But there is something about that change in wording, even, that seems to say we're not okay with being sad. It's okay to be sad. That Jesus was. Here's the last lesson from this scene. This is so significant. is that Jesus hates the effects of a sinful world. Look at verse 33. Jesus hates the effects of a sinful world. It says in verse 33 that Jesus had saw them weeping and he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That phrase, deeply moved, is a word that suggests anger and outrage and indignation. It's used in other Greek texts to describe uh, horses that are snorting, (sighs) snorting. This is not just Jesus feeling sorrow. This is Jesus feeling really ticked off. Why? Well, we can only speculate at this point, but I I think it must mean that Jesus is hating the effects of a sinful world because he knows he's the resurrection of the life. He knows that this thing doesn't end in Lazarus' death. He knows that, and yet he's looking at the pain of all these people that he loves and saying, I hate this. Isn't this encouraging that when we look around at a world that is falling apart, the Lord looks at it and is like, oh, I hate this. One of the funerals I did just a few weeks ago, um, a man who'd passed away, I believe in his 50s, pretty suddenly, and one of his grandkids, Jackson, who was seven years old, asked the question, What do we have to do to make Papa live again? And I just thought, that is the question. Isn't that the question? That's the question of everything. What do you have to do to make Papa alive again? What do you have to do to live forever? And the reality is our only hope to live forever is Jesus. And Jesus has this same feeling. Jesus has this same indignation. Jesus hates the effects of a sinful world. And in the rest of this story, we're going to see what he does about it. So scene four, Jesus and Lazarus. Here we see the authority of Jesus. We've seen the patience of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus. Now we see the authority of Jesus. In verse 38, it says, then Jesus deeply moved, again, that's that same word, snorting again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor for he's been dead four days. Thank God for practical people like Martha, (laughs) right? And and you go like, okay, she she believed in a future resurrection still, but she still wasn't tracking with what Jesus was going to do. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And of course, she's thinking, well, yeah, someday. Verse 41. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around me that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't have to pray, Lord, if it's your will, would you allow Lazarus to rise from the dead? He just says, God, thank you for the relationship I have, and I'm praying to you right now just so everyone else can listen in and hear about it. What do we learn from this story? Well, we learn that the words of Jesus give new life. What was it that moved Lazarus? It was these words, Lazarus, come out. The the movement in this passage is very interesting. What moves Jesus is the glory of God. What moves the ladies is the compassion and empathy of Jesus. And what moves Lazarus is the word of Jesus. And Jesus just simply says, Lazarus, Come out. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, and it happens, right? Listen, friends, we do not have a hear-kitty-kitty view of salvation. Some of you just really unfortunate people have cats, right? And, And I'm sorry for that. I mean, but really, I mean, you knew there were dogs, and you still went with the cat. But but you've had probably the experience at least you did initially the first few weeks you got the stupid thing where you said <laughs> here kitty kitty here kitty kitty here kitty kitty L- listen we don't have a here kitty kitty view of salvation where god is just up there sort of going please i know you probably don't want to but could you please please Be- because here's the thing we're like cats if, if given that option, we're just going to kind of look at God and go, <laughs> not interested, and we're going to go away. And, and yet, what we believe is in a Jesus who has power. Jesus isn't going, here, Lazarus, Lazarus, here, Lazarus, Lazarus, if you want to, Lazarus, please, please, please. He says, Lazarus, come out, and it happened. And one commentator said this. Had he not specified Lazarus, all the tombs would have given up their dead. I mean, isn't it good he just said Lazarus, right? If he just said, come out, out they come. Because Jesus' words have power. You want new life? Get under the words of Jesus. Jesus here is telling you today, I came that if you believe in me, you would have life and you'd have it forever. Trust him as you feel him tugging on you right now, inviting you, calling you, saying to you, come out, come out of your sin, come out of your shame, come out of this story you've been telling yourself. Come into a life that's new. Jesus' words have power, friends. And finally, we learn in this scene that Jesus gives us life at the cost of his own. John sprinkles it artistically through here, so much so that if we're not careful, we might miss it. But Jesus going to do this is the final straw. Look with me again at verse 8. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews are just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? What are they saying? They're saying, Jesus, if we go back, they're going to kill you. Jesus says, I'm going back. So Thomas, verse 16, said, all right, let us go also that we may die with him. They know what's coming. And then it says this in verse 53, passage you'll look at next week. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Raising Lazarus is the final straw that gets Jesus killed. And Jesus knows that that's what's gonna happen. And because he loves his people, he waits. And he does what God calls him to do because he wants to glorify God and he wants to honor God even though it will cost him his life. And friends, it's the same thing for us. Our hope to come out of the tomb, our hope to live forever is because Jesus died. We, the sinful ones, we, the guilty ones, we, the rebellious ones, get to have life and freedom and forgiveness forever with God. Because Jesus, the sinless, holy, perfect, righteous one, was treated like we deserved. We have hope, we have life because of Christ's death. Jesus died so that we would live forever. And so in this story, we're invited to believe. In this story, we're invited to see that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And in this story, we have hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the word of Jesus. Thank you for how he makes us new, how he makes us alive, how he wakes us up from death. And God, thank you for the hope and the future that we have because of him. We pray in his name. Amen.